Talo Falava, this is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Coming up, Pacific media that are promising positive coverage to a country with no press freedom itself. A Solomon Islands newspaper has agreed to promote China in exchange for cash. Also, collective responsibility of the scheme has eroded over time, which has led to a number of those fractures. Exploitation of seasonal workers are some of the issues discussed at a conference held in Christchurch today. And later, PNG surge in TB cases while importing drugs is tougher. A local newspaper in the Solomon Islands, the Solomon Star, has slammed the Organised Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, or OCCRP, after it was revealed that the newspaper received nearly 140,000 US dollars in funding from the Chinese government in return for pledges to promote China. The newspaper has since published a story in response to the investigation, alleging OCCRP is making unrelenting attempts to tarnish the Solomon Star. OCCRP lead editor for the Pacific, Aubrey Balford, told Lydia Lewis the investigation was built off a leaked document and interviews. We're not interested in tarnishing anyone's uh, reputation. The reason we did this story uh, is, is not because Solomon Star received funding from China. It, it's, it's their right uh, to receive funding from wherever they want. Um, what made this a story for us was actually that uh, this was a clear case where funding was contingent on an outlet in the Pacific telling China's story positively. You know, that this was funding in return for for what is essentially positive coverage for uh, a geopolitical player in the region. And that's why it was interesting and and newsworthy for us. Can you tell me more about this document? Can you explain to me the verification process and how that document verifies what you're saying? So we received a copy of this document last week. Uh, in which Solomon Star pledges about a dozen times uh, to give positive coverage to China in return for money. Uh, it's a very detailed and itemised request for new equipment, uh, for printing equipment and also broadcast equipment for their radio station, Power FM. Uh, and so the way that we verified it, firstly, we called uh, Solomon Star. We spoke to their chief of staff, uh, Alfred Sasako. And we also spoke to uh, the publisher at the time of the proposal, Kathy Lamani, uh, who has since left. Uh, they confirmed that they did make this proposal, although I didn't want to talk in too much detail about it. You know, we also worked to verify the document by seeing if the equipment that was listed in there uh, was actually delivered. So there was a quote in the document from an Australian printing supplier uh, in Brisbane. So uh, we called them up and we asked uh, and sent a copy of the quote and said, is this genuine and did you uh, deliver this equipment? And they confirmed that, yes, the the quote is genuine and all of the items listed on the quote were delivered uh, in February this year. Uh, They actually went to the Solomon Islands to install it. Uh, They also confirmed for us that um, the equipment was paid for by the Solomon Star. So the Chinese embassy didn't pay for it directly. Uh, the money uh, appears to have been given to the Solomon Star first, uh, and then they bought the equipment. 
Secondly, they talked about you know the funding that OCCRP receives. They did still quote uh, the fact that you have a clause and you always explain that your funding has a specific clause that no one can you know have a say in your stories. But how do you pitch your stories? And can you just explain what that clause means and how you make sure that no one can have a say in your stories? Sure. So uh, OCCRP is funded by a mix of non-government and government donors uh, from around the world. Uh, And we have a very strictly independent editorial policy, which means we do not talk to our donors about what stories uh, that we're going to do. And we certainly don't promise to give anyone positive coverage. Uh, And in fact, we regularly write critical stories uh, about all sorts of people, including Uh, you know, Western governments and their allies and, you know, local uh, politicians and things that can be close to Western governments. In the Pacific, uh, we've done um, some quite major and hard-hitting stories uh, in Papua New Guinea uh, that involved um, suspect payments from an Australian businessman uh, to a politician who was killed last year uh, who had shepherded in Australia's largest Uh, infrastructure investment under their Pacific step up. Uh, So we actually take it as a point of pride uh, to really go after everyone. So, you know, actually the kind of issue with this story, again, is not that a particular government is funding Pacific media. Uh, The issue is that the situation is so dire now that you have uh, Pacific media that are promising positive coverage to a country with no press freedom itself uh, in return for that money. Um, So, you know, what we would actually like to see is for democratic governments to step up and actually help support uh, the existence of independent media in the region. And that means supporting media in the region that are not always going to tell nice stories about Western countries, that aren't always going to say nice things about New Zealand or Australia and United States that will investigate and hold to account, uh, you know, people involved in in implementing policies of those governments, corruption connected to those countries. Um, That's the price of having a free media. Uh, But if we don't support a free media, what we end up with are, you know, deals that are uh, money in return for positive coverage. And and that's, that's what, you know, the heart of this story. So just to be clear, OCCRP did not pitch or explain in any way to its donors of the story that the story would any way relate to China? No, we just don't. We don't talk to our donors about what stories we're working on. Um, They just have no say. And... According to um, Shalindra Singh, who spoke to the ABC, he's saying that the big question now is, are we witnessing media capture? What's your point of view on this? Are there any facts to back this up through your reporting? There definitely have been overtures made uh, in Pacific countries from uh, China to the media. Um, Solomon Islands does seem to be an extreme case, but we have also documented uh, different approaches. For example, in Palau, you know, we found that the publisher of the oldest newspaper there had entered into an offshore deal with um, 
a businessman who was China's unofficial representative in the country, and also a group of companies based in mainland China that are actually tied to national security institutions, um, specifically to uh, the police university in Beijing, and also a um, military university uh, in uh, these businessmen's home province that actually works on, on cyber warfare, information warfare. So, yes, we do see these sort of approaches. Um, I think the big thing when we're looking at Chinese um, efforts to influence the media is, um, firstly, it has to be acknowledged that there is no press freedom in China. Uh, there is no concept right now from the Chinese state that by supporting the media, you're supporting a free and open, you know, civil space. Um, you just don't see that. And, in fact, it's very much, um, you know, in China's domestic media or abroad, an expectation that uh, the role of journalists is to tell China's story well. Um, and that's really what we're seeing. Uh, secondly, what we see is that efforts to influence the media are often tied up with what we call elite capture. So it's not simply that you have uh, the press um you know, pushing uh, a pro-Chinese line in, in return for money, but that by um, cultivating elites in the media, um, you're helping to cultivate an elite um, that is, uh, you know, in some cases beholden to China, that will have other business relationships um, that, that compromise them. So that's kind of the, the picture that we're seeing emerging. I don't think it's worth people, you know, completely losing their heads over. There is a lot of great professional journalism in the region, um, a lot of independent-minded uh, Pacific journalists, and, you know, most of them know very much the difference between um, aid funding from democratic governments that supports, uh, you know, a free media and an authoritarian government uh, giving money in return for... Uh, being praised. Both New Zealand and Samoa are in the process of reviewing its seasonal work programs. It comes off the back of reports of exploitation in New Zealand and concerns from Pacific nations that they're losing skilled labour. Caleb Fotheringham attended the RSC Scheme Conference in Christchurch today and has the story. The recognised seasonal employment or RSC Scheme means a lot for both growers and workers. New Zealand horticulturist Richard Linton from Avocado Heaven has been involved in RSC since its inception about 16 years ago. He says it makes total business sense. I know where we were as an industry pre-RSE and we were struggling. And then since the inception of RSE and 16 years later, you only need to look at the, the earnings of the industry as a whole and see how they've rocketed. Skyrocket, probably. He's also seen firsthand how the program has benefited the Pacific workers' communities back in their home countries. Build houses, establish small businesses, whether it be taxis or loaning money out to other people, all sorts of small businesses. They've taken that whole idea and run with it. It's huge for them, and not that we've done that for them, but we've given them the opportunity so they could do it for themselves. I think that's, that's the cool thing about it. But Samoa's Trade Commissioner, Wa'atuitui Apete Meredith, says his country is rethinking the scheme. Wa'atuitui says RSC was a product of its own success and Samoa needs to make sure it does not adversely impact its own economic development. 
Now Samoa has to take a reality check of how this program, this scheme, has been so successful that we need more equity or equitable uh, distribution of the benefits so that everybody can at least have a chance. In January this year, Samoa temporarily halted sending seasonal workers to New Zealand and Australia over brain drain, exploitation concerns and social issues. Va'atuitui says there have been occasions of young men having extramarital affairs overseas, which will be addressed in the latest policy. When you see someone in your village on Facebook or on TikTok and they are messing around overseas with other partners and they have a young family at home, they you know, tend to be frowned upon too in the village. Samoa was meant to implement its new policy in April, but it still hasn't come out. Va'atuitui says it's because the government does not want to make any mistakes. He says it is being reviewed by Cabinet at the moment and should be publicly released within the next few weeks. Meanwhile, New Zealand is also in the middle of reviewing its policy. The Employment Opportunities Commissioner late last year likened some treatment of Pacific workers to modern slavery. Mal Malvagamon from the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment says the scheme was mostly working. We're happy to say that the scheme is generally functioning really well. All parties consider it a triple win across the Hortbit industry, uh, workers in the Pacific. So we didn't find that there is widespread exploitation in the scheme. However, collective responsibility of the scheme has eroded over time which has led to a number of those fractures. Sam Foley from the same ministry says the advice to Cabinet was the RSC scheme needs more flexibility, transparency and a more data-driven approach when it comes to deciding on worker caps. Mr Foley says he is unable to comment on specific policy changes because it was still being discussed by Cabinet. Papua New Guinea's issues with a shortage of foreign exchange is leading to a surge in cases of tuberculosis. A number of importers in PNG have struggled to bring goods in because of the difficulty finding foreign exchange, which has been tightly controlled by the central bank, the Bank of PNG. Most notably among these importers is fuel retailer Puma, which has been forced to ration supplies at times over the past six months. Our PNG correspondent Scott Waire told Don Wiseman how the foreign exchange issue is hitting the supply of critical drugs. It's a serious situation where we've got the health system dealing with two, two issues. The first is a rise in TB cases post-COVID, and they, were, they recorded a 19% increase, so about 7,000 new cases on top of the 30,000 that we already have in the country. And on top of that, you've got the difficulty of getting medicines on time because there's a foreign currency shortage and the health department can't get its checks cleared in order to purchase the medicines on time. So that's the biggest challenge that they're facing right now. Um, Yesterday, the Minister for Health, Dr. Lino Tom, called a meeting with all section heads just to get an understanding of where they were in terms of the solutions that were being put in place, the actions that were being taken. And the actions that have been taken, according to a brief that was released yesterday, is that the international partners, you know, the World Bank, the, the Australian government and other partners have been called on to help 
plug the gaps in the medicine shortages that we have, TB drugs especially. And so all that put together has put pressure on the health system. And it's real, real concern. I know one of the requirements coming the other day from the police commissioner with his pandemic head hat on was that the central bank and the other the businesses involved had to get their heads together and sort it out, sort out this problem. Well, what have the Ministry of Health people been saying to the central bank? They've got the money for the drugs. It's just the the central bank has been very tight-fisted uh, in terms of rationing the foreign currency and addressing those needs. So it's got a, you know a whole spectrum of needs that it has to work with. One of them few, which is very obvious, and the other most pressing is medicines. And the understanding of how the central bank works, what are the rationales behind rationing and who gets first priority and all that, very few people understand it. So it's, it's very frustrating coming from a space where you don't understand what's happening within the central bank, but you, you see the outcomes and you see the results of uh, foreign currency rationing. All right. Well, let's look at this more widely if we can. Why has there been an escalation of tuberculosis cases because of the pandemic? Was that just lack of drugs? Yeah, I, I asked that question yesterday, and one of the reasons given was that during the COVID period where there were restrictions and people couldn't go to the hospitals, couldn't access drugs, that gave partly a rise to this increase in the in the new cases. The other reason has been just non-compliance of patients not taking the drugs that they're already on. Again, it's a, it's a complex issue and a combination of causes that have led to this. It's an increase over time from 2021 to 2022, and then another increase, a further increase is expected in 2023. There's enough capacity to deal with it. It's just the money's not coming through. There's a budget shortfall and also foreign currency rationing. So two things on, on, on different fronts. And there are a couple of other critical health issues that PNG suffers from, and that is yep. high levels of HRV and very high levels of malaria, all of yep. which require regular drugs, don't they? Yes. Malaria is is a very common disease. So it's like usually you will find malaria drugs in the most remote places. In terms of TB, it has to be monitored and there has to be, you know, interventions, regular interventions. So when there's a shortage, it causes a whole whole range of problems, including multi-drug resistance TB. The head coach of the Fiji Pearls says the future of Nepal and the country looks bright as the team continues to compete at the Nepal World Cup in Cape Town, South Africa. Unaisi Rokoura, a former Pearls captain herself, and technical coach Yvette McCausland-Dury both believe the young squad has performed to expectations and they've been able to achieve their goals so far. Elias Satora reports. The Pearls have won one game out of five matches so far a 52-48 win over Zimbabwe in the first stage eliminations last week. They lost to Tonga and Australia before going down to Malawi and England in the second stage eliminations this week. Fiji Pearls head coach Unaisi Rokoura said having local base players compete at the World Meet augurs well for future growth of the sport. It's, it's amazing, like, you know, to have these girls come in on a local base. You know, we've, we have a great future with Nebo Fiji and a great opportunity to have these players come in for their first World Cup. Uh, you know, we've got a young Eliana going in today, you know, debuting in the World Cup. So it's great to see that they've got the opportunity to be here and, and they're making it really, you know, making it count. Fiji Pearls technical coach Yovette 
McCoston Dury believes the ultimate aim is for Fiji netball teams to play in more competitions that will help in their growth. Yeah, the ultimate is to have competition, and I think the more they get exposed to competition, the better. The challenge is um, obviously the money and the ability to send people into different places, and they've had some good support through both Singapore and Ozsport. Um, and of course the rules make it challenging for players who are in other competitions to be eligible, but they're all home-based, they're all speakers of Fiji, and they live their culture, they breathe it, and I think for them, you know, that's a really huge piece to go away and they'll develop the next. We've got a youngster who's still at school at 18 years of age, uh, we've got some older ones, five mothers, and if they can be an inspiration to the next young Fijian woman, then that's a great outcome. Having a chance to play Australia was a highlight for the young players and the team at the tournament so far. It's a great opportunity. I mean, you know, we never know. This is we comes in a, in a once in a lifetime. You know, we, we don't know when we play. This girl to play the, the number one in the world. It'll be in the next four years. But when you get the opportunity to play the number one, you know, the girls knew the you know, the game plan that uh, we, we we had to work with going into the diamonds. And it's important that you know they got the opportunity to have a go and then you know they enjoyed the game. Meanwhile, the Tongan Tala have won three games out of five so far, claiming victories over Fiji. Zimbabwe and Scotland. They meet Malawi in a match that could see them climb up the rankings from their current seventh spot on Friday morning. That's Pacific Waves for today. Don't forget you can listen back on rnzi.com slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the team here at RNZ Pacific, so far so far.